The reason why third-party cookies are so appealing is because multiple different entities can set and read them. And this is not the case for many other connective tissues in, on the web. You're listening to Sunny Side Up, a B2B podcast that brings you the juiciest insights from go-to-market leaders and practitioners. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Sunny Side Up. I'm your host this week, Gareth Noonan, General Manager of Demandbase's Advertising Business. And today I'm very excited to talk to Anna Milicevich on all things cookie and identity. Anna is a very sought after and thoughtful voice in the ad tech and martech space with deep experience in product strategy, go to market and is co-founder and principal at Sparrow Advisors, an advertising, marketing and media consultancy. Anna, welcome to the pod and tell us a bit more about your ad tech path and, and also about Sparrow. Thank you. Thank you, Garrett. It's lovely to be here today with you. Uh, yeah, I uh, uh, am often referred to as an ad tech veteran. I, I don't know if I like that label myself, <laughs> but uh, I, I've certainly been around the space for a better part of you know, going on probably more than a decade, very deep in the data and data management space and its applications, not just for advertising and marketing, but beyond that in, in large corporations. And um, about uh, seven years ago now, I uh, co-founded Sparrow Advisors as a management consultancy that focuses on uh, helping companies really grasp the nitty gritty about these very rapidly evolving, mainly digitally originating technologies. And uh, we've worked with brands directly, with technology companies, with investors on various really complex challenges in the space and um, how to solve them intelligently. So speaking of challenges, one of the, the very topical challenges and, and issues that has been facing the, the ad tech and martech space in, in recent years is obviously identity and the role of third party cookies in particular. In, in targeting and measurement. You know, I'm conscious that the, the audience for Sunny Side Up uh, definitely has a marketing focus, um, but might not be as in the weeds on, on these kinds of topics as maybe you and I are. So maybe we start with what is a third party cookie? Why are they important? Um, how are they used? How did we get here? And, you know, what changes are coming? This is a, a great topic and I hope no one's hungry because I, whenever I talk about cookies, all I can think of are actual real cookies. But um, back in the early days of the internet, in the ancient days when you know we still had the Netscape browser and and similar technologies that are really not in use anymore, cookies were invented as teeny tiny little text files that lived on your machine that could store some basic information about the websites that you were visiting. Uh, things like your login information, maybe some preferences, maybe, you know, hey, if you're in New York, you wanted to read about the New York Rangers as opposed to a different hockey team. That's something that would get stored in a cookie and uh, your your experience would get better on uh, your Internet experience would get better. Fast forward to 2022 and we've built a very lucrative and complex advertising industry on the back of these teeny tiny text files. We're mostly talking about third-party cookies here. Cookies have a couple of different flavors. There's first-party cookies, which you set if you own the web property that is setting that cookie. Uh, Second-party cookies are, we can skip over them or fast forward because they're not really in use as much, but think of 
an umbrella property that has uh, multiple sub properties that would technically each be in their own domain and connecting them together again through common ownership would give you that second party relationship. But it's really not something that's that's commonly in use, largely because third party cookies have been so overloaded. So third-party cookies are basically the vehicle through which you pass information from one website to multiple other entities. So if I wanted to, if I'm, let's say I'm CNN, and I wanted to pass targeting information to a demand-side platform or a similar targeting platform, I would do this. The mechanism that I would use to do this would be through third-party cookies. The reason why third-party cookies are so appealing is because multiple different entities can set and read them. And this is not the case for many other connective tissues in, on the web. And uh, it's also the root cause of their relative longevity. They are very simple and uh, can be repurposed for a lot of different uh, purposes. So does that kind of hit the the level of description that, that you were going for? I, I, there's so much nuance here that it's really almost hard to, to have a, you know, cookies 101 type of uh, explanation. No, I think that's a great level set. Thanks, Anna. It's, you know, really what... You know, what we're trying to do is establish how are they used, why are they used, and, and why are the proposed changes, you know, causing so much tumult and, uh, you know, so much the focus of a lot of um, marketers' minds and a lot of um, the conversations around programmatic advertising over the last couple of years. So what, what changes have ha- already happened in the last couple of years, maybe with some browsers, not with others? What's coming? What's the likely path over the next couple of years with Chrome in particular? And, and what kind of impacts should our listeners be looking out for? And needless to say, how can they be prepared? Yeah, so uh, browsers started restricting access to third-party cookies um, for uh, the, the first part of internet life, uh, cookies, third-party cookies. And most of the times when I say cookies now, I mean third-party cookies. Um, so just uh, keep keep that in mind. I don't, I don't have to say third-party cookies every time. When modern browsers sort of started with an always-on automatically, you can set third-party cookies to your heart's delight, which, uh, as one can imagine, as more and more companies started sprouting around the, but predominantly the digital advertising ecosystem, Uh, started getting not abused in a nefarious way, but just overused, let's say. It's uh, not something that is readily apparent to the end user. So it's a very opaque process. So consumers might not actually know that any of this cookie setting and ferrying of various data points is happening in the background. So when we started um, having in, in, in industry-wide privacy-related conversations going back to about you know, 10, 12 years ago now, mainly through regulatory action stemming from certain European laws, first the European Cookie Law of, I believe, 2011, and then GDPR, started, the, the cookies started coming more into focus And I'm sure most of uh, your listeners will have interacted with one of those horrible, horrible cookie pop-ups that um, show up on European sites or when you're um, in Europe yourself traveling and trying to access any site, really. 
where, you know, out of the blue, you pop up something that says, hey, do you want cookies set on this site or this site uses cookies? And, you know, if you're not a user, you're, you're not a, a somebody who's familiar with Internet technologies, advertising technologies, that might just be, you know, word salad to you and, and not really mean anything cogent. But, um, but we started seeing browsers start to incorporate certain privacy considerations or rather limiting who can set third-party cookies automatically. And so uh, first, the uh, less commonly used browsers started shifting from, um, yes, anybody can set third-party cookies to third-party cookies are automatically disabled. And now we're in a situation where Safari, which is a, obviously one of the larger browsers, especially in the U.S. market, because we have such an overwhelming majority of iOS phone users here compared to the rest of the world, has also adopted this. So have Opera, Firefox and you know, other, other browsers um, that have a smaller market share. And Google's Chrome has announced that they will also deprecate third-party cookies uh, initially on a much more aggressive timeline that they've since postponed now and pushed into 2023. Interestingly, I was at uh, DMS, uh, Luma uh, Partners DMS conference yesterday. This is the digital marketing summit that they put together every year. And uh, a gentleman from Google's team had um, uh, announced to um, many gasps on stage that uh, he's not entirely sure that Google is going to stick to the timeline that they've proposed for a third-party cookie deprecation. So there seems to be some fungibility of date when third-party cookies are going to be sunset across the entire ecosystem. But uh, anybody who's operating on the internet really needs to shift their mindset to be prepared for a world in which third-party cookies no longer exist. That's really interesting, Anna, that that statement was made yesterday. And presumably, if the timing could change, it would be far more likely that it would get pushed out uh, rather than being pulled forward. Uh, but to your point, you know, we as, as marketers and technologists need to assume that this is going to happen. Uh, you mentioned it's already happened in Safari and Firefox and other smaller browsers. Um, so what does preparation look like? What are the, the top two or three things that marketers should understand and should start to build more control over uh, as they prepare for this? It's very challenging to, you know, change the wheels on a car that's driving 80 miles an hour down a highway. And that's basically what we're asking marketers to do with uh, this shift from third-party cookies. Now, I, I can't emphasize enough how much of digital advertising today relies on measurement, planning, and execution that all rests on third-party cookies. So I think the first layer that market marketers need to grasp here is how ready are their execution partners for a world without cookies and have the targeting platforms that they normally use made any preparations? Uh, what is the extent of those preparations? Are these even conversations that they're having with, uh, with their execution partners? So, you know, if you're working with an advertising agency, 
now would be a good time to talk to them about a cookie-less future or the post-cookie world. The same goes with if you're the same 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 advice goes if you're working with a platform or several platforms. Like these conversations should have already happened in an ideal world, but for for many marketers, they may have manifested first as an inability to target Safari users, for example, or, or similar. So it's it's. Uh, you know, treating the symptom rather than understanding what's causing it is, is kind of the, the first level of interaction here. Then I, I would say uh, marketers should really do an assessment uh, themselves of uh, how they want to approach user identity, whether autonomous, semi-autonomous or PII-based types of interactions and targeting with uh, consumers are what they really need. And to, out of that uh, type of analysis, craft a, a data strategy moving forward, understanding very clearly how they're going to manage PII, non-PII, and really all segments of customer data. Now, this is a particularly challenging conversation in a lot of companies because most of customer-level data usually rests and resides within the marketing department, but the marketing department doesn't necessarily have the internal buy-in to drive data strategy for the entire company, for example. And so there's a, a disconnect between who should own this type of work in you know, mid to large companies, usually smaller companies have a, a little bit of an easier go here. And w- between those two and a half, let's say, tactics, I think it's it's very, the, the, the data strategy and the assessment are very kind of close in, in my mind as a, you know, what to do next. Those would be the perfect steps to take to really understand where, you are as a company, how much exposure you'll potentially have when third-party cookies go away, and really to identify any elements of your ad tech, martech, and other operations that are uh, reliant on third-party cookies today that might be impacted. Is it also fair to say, Anna, that companies that have access to a significant amount of first-party consented data and their understanding of that data and the the right activation partners uh, will also have a leg up maybe on on um, you know businesses that that don't really have that understanding and that access. I think that's one of the kind of universally recommended solutions for reducing one's reliance on third party data. Is oh great, just use first party data. But uh, for some companies, this is just not going to be a very viable strategy. For example, if you know, you're a consumer packaged goods company and you sell through retailers, you don't have a lot of first-party data of your own. Now, it's, the situation is a little bit different if you're, say, a you know, technology company who wants to find buyers for it. So like a classic B2B use case. The value of, of first-party data is very different there, but the challenges are also quite different. There it becomes more about do you have enough of a seed set in that first-party data to model, say, a larger pool for like an acquisition campaign? Do you 
want to rely solely on PII, like email addresses or hashed email addresses, I should say, for onboarding purposes? Or do you need a, a supplemental solution to reach a, a wider audience? And depending on your use cases, the answers will, will run the gamut from I'm fine with just an email list to all, all the way to, well, I really need to work with premium publishers to activate this audience that I'm really interested in reaching. And again, knowing where you sit on that spectrum, because you've done the kind of the impact analysis and you have a data strategy is going to be critical. And speaking of publishers, Anna, this isn't just exclusively a, a challenge from the for the advertiser. It's also publishers who want to monetize their content and for whom programmatic advertising and an understanding of audiences uh, has obviously allowed them to charge a premium based on that understanding and the amount of data that they have on individual users. So what's changing for publishers and how are they getting ahead of this? Publishers are uh, stratifying. So you you have, you, we, we used to have a very healthy sort of you know high end of the market, mid market, and then long tail of publishers probably about, you know, 15-ish, 20 years ago when the internet came bursting through the door <laughs> and and first um, started hitting critical mass. And now that middle has thinned out. And this is not something that's unique to, to publishers, to media owners. It's happening in retail. It's happening in other industries where that mid-market is getting thinner and thinner and there's consolidation on the long well con- consolidation on the top end and more entrance in the long tail and so that creates a, an interesting challenge for publishers because if you're a top tier one publisher like uh, you know new york times washington post cnn similar your solutions and your uh, ability to do something interesting, not just with customer data, but with targeting, with personalization, and, and with being able to serve a very wide variety of advertisers, whether they're B2B, B2C, whoever, is increasing whilst everybody else uh, will need to rely on some type of targeting platform to do the advertising layer for them. And uh, for the longest time, when we talked about publishers in the industry, we would kind of assume that they were a monolith and like, you know, a a publisher who is not one of the top 10, maybe in the top 500 now, has a very, very different day-to-day set of challenges and, and requires a different tool set than uh, some uh, than their their larger uh, colleagues, so I, I think it is a, a universal challenge. It's a challenge of if I have enough first party data to be appealing to advertisers directly and on my own, uh, advertisers are now going to be evaluating that not just against other publishers, but potentially against retail media, which is a, a, a growing category 
and you know, definitely against platforms like Facebook and Google. And there is no easy way to say, well, this publisher's data is much more valuable to me than what I can get on this platform or similar. And that's kind of what's missing from a lot of these conversations and what publishers need to articulate to the market in, in a better way. And if we look at that that key matching component of, you know, we talked about an advertiser's first party data, uh, you know, your customers, your prospects, your, your consented and opted in audiences, and then trying to match and reach those same users with, say, a publisher's audience um, of their subscribers or people who, you know, log in to access their content. What are the technologies and what are the, the sort of the matching dependencies um, between the buy side and the sell side there? What's a, I know that that's a topic in and of itself and and you know a pretty pretty you know we could go quite deep on it but at a high level um you know what are the technologies and what are the approaches that that advertisers can be looking at there usually a, a couple of technologies will will definitely be in the mix there right off the bat an onboarding technology is is likely a key component of this so a technology that can take PII data sets, anonymize them sufficiently, make them targetable and addressable and, and similar. Some type of data hub, and I'm purposefully using this word because for some this could be a data warehouse, for some it could be a clean room, for some it could be a CDP, for others a DMP. Uh, CDP is a customer data platform, DMP is a data management platform. All, all nuances depending on who, how, how, how large you are is not really the right analogy here, but, but on, on your individual circumstances here. So it, it really varies. And, and I think that's what's making any type of standardized recommendation here really challenging. But some uh, combination of, of these technologies are, are most likely in the mix in addition to activation platforms. So like, a, you know, demand side platforms, likely an ad server somewhere in there and, and the kind of like the, the classic tools of ad tech too. And needless to say, Anna, we come at this world with um, a particular B2B lens. That's the space that we're most familiar with and that, that we operate in. Am I oversimplifying things if I say that the B2B world might be better prepared for these changes because our understanding of the world and our, our targeting and how we organize audiences is so much more aggregated and based on cohorts like accounts versus, you know, exclusively targeting and measuring individuals? I think you're you're spot on that, that you might be better prepared, at least conceptually speaking. I think where it gets perhaps a little bit murkier for B2B marketers is when they're doing very broad based like awareness and initial acquisition kinds of campaigns. That's when B2B marketers resemble some of the challenges that B2C marketers have, but not the same extent. And I think that the key differentiator here is uh, scale. Scale is something that is very, very important to a B2C marketer. But to a B2B marketer, precision outweighs scale every single time. So I think by thinking in cohorts and thinking beyond the one-to-one marketing fit, it, this is where, where B2B marketers really have an advantage and a better understanding of the audiences that they're trying to target. 
And we did touch on the the geo component of this earlier, Anna, that a lot of you know changes and, and challenges in, in the privacy realm and the advertising realm have you know sort of taken root or have been most pronounced in Europe, for example, with uh, with GDPR and privacy shield regulations, etc. Do you think there's going to be any different approach required in a post cookie environment in environments like the in, in Europe versus the US, for example, or is everyone being you know, faced with it, the literally the same challenge in this context? It's a case of very different approaches. And, you know, Europe has taken the regulation first approach and the U.S. has adopted more of a laissez-faire, you know, wait and see kind of approach. And uh, I think um, in Europe in general, regulators have been much more stringent about customer data and preemptive protection of customers to limit the amount of data sharing that's possible. And this, um, in, in the European case, it doesn't apply solely to digital data. It also applies to offline data. And uh, depending on individual jurisdictions, there are some nuances that you know make uh, the kinds of, of targeting that we think and, and welcome daily here in the U.S. We make it really hard in other parts of, of the world. I think Europe has certainly kind of established a bar for everybody else. And we see this in, as, as other jurisdictions start thinking about and enacting their own legislation that's around data protection, whether that's Australia or China or increasingly in in the U.S., we've seen a a very distributed approach to uh, data protection. Uh, It's a state-level conversation that California initiated with uh, CCPA and that now has, I think we're up to five states having their individual versions of a data protection law that varies pretty greatly. I think this is a really tenuous path we're on in the U.S. because the weight of compliance to comply in a hypothetical scenario with 50 different individual state nuances around data sharing and data protection is going to just be an operational nightmare. But uh, but I, I don't think we... I don't think it's realistic to not take any type of regulatory action, mostly because of how easy it is to generate digital data and how easy it is to package and resell it uh, somehow. And so you you want to have, as a consumer, you want to have some type of control and not have any you know fly-by-night app that you install on your phone be able to understand what other apps are running on your phone and then package that and sell it as a targeting parameter, which is something that that is happening right now on mostly on Android phones because they, they have this flaw uh, that, that lets you do something like that. So, you know, not, not to get all into extremely negative use cases here, but the pendulum has kind of swung from consumers have no protection towards, well, we must regulate this to somewhere in the middle. And, and the industry, uh, the advertising and marketing industry, I think, is, is stepping up to think of newer scenarios and, and how to really make that 
value trade-off between, hey, you're getting some, you know, fabulous free content here in exchange for some advertising more clear to consumers. I, I don't know if that's actually answered your question. I feel like I, I've gone uh, a little bit more towards the uh, regulation is actually kind of good, mostly because it's forcing us to rethink uh, the approach that that we've taken so far, which has been very kind of anything goes. Absolutely. But hopefully some consolidation in that regulation. So to your point, we're not literally dealing with different laws in 50 states uh, in the US case, which would make a, a rather complex industry and a complex situation even more complicated. And it does sound, obviously, you know, Anna, from this conversation, we know that more complexity is coming. We hope that Google will continue to, to be as transparent as, as it has been, you know, around timing updates and around components like the, the privacy sandbox, uh, which is where a specific product ideas are, are shared and evaluated by the, the industry, uh, you know, on an open source kind of basis. But this has been great. Really enjoyed the, the conversation, Anna. If people want to reach, learn more about Sparrow, uh, learn more about you, follow you, how can they do so? And also, last question would be, in terms of just industry resources where, you know, in addition to what you're kind of publishing, but just generally speaking, resources that, that marketers can go to and lean on that are covering these topics in a smart fashion, what would you recommend? Sure. So you can find us on sparrowadvisors.com. And uh, you can also find me on Twitter as AEXM. I tweet a lot. And uh, we also, I might, might be a little bit biased here when, when recommending industry resources, but we also publish a weekly newsletter called Sparrow One, which uh, takes uh, every week, takes a new topic from ad tech, martech, media, digital, commerce, and adjacent fields and, and goes in deep. And you can uh, find that on our website too. In terms of other resources, I'm on the board of uh, ID5, which is an identity company that's uh, focused on this post-cookie future. And they publish a lot of really, really good content on their blog and, and other channels. So if, if you're looking for a crash course on what a post-cookie uh, world could look like. I, I think that's a that's a really good resource. And then you know the usual suspects. I think most of the trade media in advertising and ad tech has a really really good grasp on this space. So uh, someone like uh, Ad Exchanger will convey a lot of context around the more recent announcements, fast moving parts, Digiday, Adweek, AdAge, and, uh, and similar trades are, are always on the top of my list. Uh, and, um, you know, someone like uh, Morning Brew, Marketing Brew now as well. So uh, lots of reading on a daily basis, but that is the nature of this space. It's, it's really exciting to be somewhere where on the one hand, so much is riding on this relatively fragile technology, like when you were talking about hundreds of billions of dollars a year spent on online advertising. And then, you know, to have it moving and changing practically on a week to week basis and something new is popping up and there's a new you know, privacy framework you should check out and there's a new acronym you should learn about. And, and there's so much here that is truly interesting and, and innovative that it, it should be a full time job just keeping track of all of the changes in, in the space. Well, I can say, Anna, that the, the Sparrow One weekly newsletter is required reading in, in my household every weekend, so I strongly recommend it. Thank you so much for being on the pod. 
for our listeners, uh, you know, I think this is is it's coming. It's it's already here in the case of some other browsers, but obviously uh, a key topic for all of us to stay on top of. And uh, thank you, Anna, for for keeping us smart on it. Uh, thank you for having me. And I, I I heard that last sentence in in that you know movie trailer voice, like it's already here, <laughs> and <laughs> and yes, it is. And yeah. and we're we're kind of you know fixing it as as we go along. But uh, I yeah, try wonderful. to avoid using the words in a world, but but that is the world <laughs> that, that we live in. Thanks for being on Sunny Side Up, Anna. Thank you, thank you. Today's episode is made possible by Demandbase. Demandbase is smarter GTM for B2B brands to help marketing and sales teams spot the juiciest opportunities earlier and progress them faster. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Sunny Side Up. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. You can also find us on YouTube and Demandbase TV. 